Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, August 19th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's financial show, we're going to talk a little bit more about the recent uh, trouble, I guess is the best way to put it, Matt, that GE is facing right now from a, a, a short report. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium that's coming up on Thursday. That's a mouthful. Uh, MasterCard is placing some bigger bets on crypto, apparently. Uh, we've got an interesting listener email question that kind of uh, piggybacks off that MasterCard news as well. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks for you to watch uh, for the coming week. Joining me in the studio today, as most always, sometimes he's out. Though last week was one of those times, celebrating a little bit of a cyanar to summer. A certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything? Pretty good. Just getting back from my longest vacation in uh, six years. That's so, amazing yeah. to me. I mean, like, what? <laughs> uh, why? Why? What have you been doing, man? I mean, come on. Oh, uh, work it. Oh, well, I mean, we had two babies. <laughs> I don't count the. You know, leave I took for those as a vacation. Any, no, any parent I think would agree with that. That is more work than your actual job. There's no <laughs> question. <laughs> so yeah, this is the first time with like no actual work at all. And nice. since I think we figured it out since our honeymoon, it was the longest vacation we've taken. Well, that's good. Where did you go? Uh, we went to a place called Fripp Island, South Carolina. Oh yeah, I'm very familiar with it. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, kind of remote. Um, just kind of to put it in, put a picture in your head. Um, all the Vietnam scenes in the Forrest Gump movie were shot there. Oh wow! Yeah, I, I so, guess I uh, forgot about that part. Yes, so very, very remote. It's kind of real quiet. Great for families, and yeah, a lot of good times. Good deal. Good deal. Well, glad to have you back. And we wanted to kick this week off really with. Pro- I mean, I think this is really the biggest story over the last week here. Pretty amazing to see last week. GE shares got hammered, falling 11% on a report out from Harry Markopoulos, claiming that their financials were a sham and that GE is a bigger fraud than Enron. Now, Mr. Markopoulos is known for uncovering Bernie Madoff's scheme, so he has a level of credibility there. Um, Matt, the thing that I can't get past with this, though, is that he 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 wrote this at the behest of a of a hedge fund taking a short position on GE stock, right? Yeah, this literally feels like the opposite of what he did in the Madoff case. <laughs> um, that was kind of like on behalf of the general investing public, right? Um, and that's why everyone took this so seriously because he was the big Madoff whistleblower. Um, but when you actually dig into it, like you said, he wrote this on behalf of a hedge fund. And it's really the wording is really kind of, kind of convoluted on in his disclosure statement, but basically it's saying that this is a hedge fund that has a short position in GE, and Markopoulos is is getting compensated based on a percentage of the profits that this hedge fund makes from shorting the stock. Right. That sounds like a pretty big conflict of interest. Seemingly, uh, seemingly. Right. It's kind of falls into the how could this possibly be legal category. Uh, that was uh, my which I'm reaction. Not, I'm not totally convinced it is. Uh, well, I mean, maybe that's the case, you know. And so, I mean, I, I, I went. I mean, if you look at market manipulation, I mean, market manipulation according to the internet, and I mean, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true, right, Matt? <laughs> um, but I mean, this is actually sourced definition of market manipulation. It's a type of market abuse where there's a deliberate attempt to interfere with the free and fair operation of the market and create artificial, false, or misleading appearances with respect to the price of 
or market for a product, security, commodity, or currency. Market manipulation, of course, is prohibited in most countries. In particular, it's prohibited in the United States under section blah, blah, blah of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. So clearly, we know what market manipulation is. We know that it's illegal. On the surface, I agree with you. This really does look like it. I mean, it's, it, it, I'm not one to just say, hey, I'm coming to the defense of GE because GE's not a stock I want to own anyway. Not before this, not after it. I'm just, you know, I've got my eyes on other things here. But, but I, I, I feel like, I mean, I feel like GE is kind of getting the shaft here. They, there's not, almost nothing they can do to to combat this. No, well, I mean, they've done pretty much all they could to combat this. The CEO bought, spent two million dollars on stock the day this happened. I probably would have spent more myself if I had my laptop with me at the time. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm a GE shareholder in full disclosure. Um, I think they're worth more than they're trading for right now. I think, and it, it, board members were kind of pointing out parts of the report that were based on outdated information. Yeah. Um, the only gray area in that definition that you just read is: Did he mean to be misleading to the investing public? Because um, it was definitely an attack on the stock. It was definitely kind of, a, I'd say, a biased report in its wording. Yeah. To put it to put it mildly, it was definitely meant to drive the stock price down. Um, I mean, I but, feel like right there, that is the intention to be misleading. Almost, I mean, biased is essentially the intention to lead in whatever direction he wants and he knows whether it's leading or misleading so to speak so i mean i don't i mean i, I i'm not trying to make any accusations here but man i tell you when you look at the option he could have just gone to the sec with this information as a whistleblower and there would have been uh the potential for him to profit from that i mean there is there is whistleblower status with the sec where he would be able to uh share in some of those gains if there were if there were any gains that were recovered uh, based on pr- the proof that there were fraudulent activities going on yeah this sounds like something that was done primarily for the money right and the kind of proof that this wasn't this report didn't have a whole lot to stand on is that you know what? What is it? Two market days later, the stock's pretty much back where it was. Yeah. Um, all it took was the CEO kind of you know doubling his investment. A few analysts coming out saying this report isn't all it appears to be, um, and don't pay too much attention to the name of the person who wrote it. This is a completely different situation than when he when he he investigated Madoff. Um, it's just a completely different situation. It's like kind of like using a brand name for a different reason. Is kind of what it feels like here. It feels like to me, he had a clear ethical choice here. And I mean, listen, it, we live in a world of right and wrong and a lot of in between. Um, and, and I saw one of his quotes. He said, you know, I've got a family to support or a family to feed. You have so do I, dude. I mean, like a lot of people do. I mean, I don't know. To me, I understand he probably had a very big paycheck coming from this. The hedge fund probably gave him a lot of money to do this, based on what we understand. Um, it also feels like there was a pretty clear ethical choice there. I mean, he did not, he's a smart guy, clearly. So he knew going into this kind of what was going to happen and the criticism that was going to be lobbed his way uh, after it. Um, so yeah, like I mean, I'm not I'm not really one to sit here and immediately just come up to, to the defense of GE. I think there have been a lot of things that they've done in, in regard to managing the company. They could have done better. Uh, financial chicanery in in manipulating those financials all the way back to 1995 is a really big accusation that spans a lot of leadership. Um, really, 
uh, throws KPMG, their auditor, <laughs> under the bus as well. I mean, hey, listen, let's let's find out if there is something going on here, and if there is fraud to that extent, I mean, then then thank you, Mr. Markopoulos. But but I just suppose I feel like you could have gone about this a better way. Yeah, and it's it's also worth pointing out that generally in situations like this, the company that's under attack kind of stays silent. That wasn't the case. GE immediately snapped to its defense. Yeah, said all this could have been cleared up if he would have just called them and asked them to verify certain figures and and information, and it could have been cleared up that way. So just the fact that GE's been so vocal about it is how this is a lot different than other situations. There's a lot. There's, I mean, short sellers issue reports attacking companies all the time, and the standard response is you know no comment. Right. And that wasn't the case here. And it's also worth noting that GE said, whoa, 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 all of this is public information that was already known. All this is baked into the stock price already. Um, we're putting our money where our mouth is by buying more. So it's a, a unique situation. And like I said, I don't want to rush to judgment one way or the other. And as you said, there's a lot that GE should not be defended on. But I feel like this is just kind of a rehash of old information with a a big name person who's had success in the past exposing fraud. So everyone just assumed that, you know, that must be the case here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, we'll follow it and see how this all shakes out. But uh, yeah, tough, tough week for GE last week. I, I'm really kind of feeling for him in this case. I'm not sure they really got necessarily the fair shake, but we we will keep uh, we will keep on this story for our listeners. Uh, let's switch to something maybe a little bit more uh, cheerful. I mean, and I guess cheerful in the sense that Jackson Hole is a really nice place, and you can just imagine yourself in Jackson Hole. Now, imagine yourself in Jackson Hole, and you're not skiing, but rather you're going to the Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium. I mean, that sounds just like a vacation right there, Matt. Um, there is uh, – on Thursday, the Federal Reserve Chief Jerome Powell will deliver the opening remarks at the Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium. And the reason why we're talking about this today, um, there are some analysts out there that that say that really Powell needs to get out in front of the recent market volatility, uh, the inverted yield curve, all of this stuff, and, and really explicitly address – these issues um, and and how he plans to address them going, how he plans to deal with them going forward. If he doesn't, then the markets uh, are likely to react, more than likely overreact in a very negative way. Uh, talk to our listeners about Jackson Hole and, and where you stand on how much he needs to be saying about this stuff anyway. Well, basically what investors want to hear is that the rate cut that just happened isn't just a one-time thing or a kind of a wait-and-see approach. They want to see that this is the first step in kind of a series of rate cuts. Um, just to kind of give you some of the the, the figures, I just checked uh, CME has a thing called the FedWatch tool that is based on the futures markets and calculates the percentage chance of you know certain rate actions. Right now, the market is expecting one rate cut in September another one in October, and yet another in December. The most popular estimate by the end of the year is three rate cuts from here. Wow. So that so that's what the market wants. And the reason the market kind of reacted negatively after the recent rate cut, even though they got the cut they wanted, was because Jay Powell essentially made it sound like this was going to be just kind of a mid-cycle correction. And what investors really want to see is, no, we're, this is not – just kind of a mid-cycle thing. This is 
a starting a new cycle of rate cuts that's going to last for a little while and keep rates low for the foreseeable future in order to keep the expansion going. And that's really what it's all about. Investors want to see that the the Fed is doing everything in its power to keep the economic expansion going. And the market action of the past week or so, especially with the yield curve inverting the way it did, um, bond yields are just plunging. Uh, The two-year and 10-year inverted for the first time since 2007, and we all know what happened right after 2007. (laughs) So um, basically, the market wants him to address that. you know, talk about the recent market volatility and indicate that the Fed is going to do everything in their power to keep the expansion going. So just reassurance. They want reassurance. I mean, I guess that's fine. Everybody wants a little reassurance, a reassurance in their life, and uh, maybe this is the opportunity for uh, Powell to offer that. But yeah, it does. It it really feels like we're painting ourselves into a corner with it, with this interest rate policy because you get those things as low as they are, and you've got no other. Levers to really pull um, if you know we run into a um, run into a buzzsaw. Um, what? How? I mean, it feels like they 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 can only cut rates so much. I mean, is quantitative easing something that you suspect? I mean, is that something we should be expecting here in the next couple of years? I mean, I I I know we said this is just it's all wrapping up and we're winding. Getting ourselves out of this, but but it, it seems like they could just decide at the drop of a hat to do it again. Well, I mentioned a few weeks ago, and I have a very unpopular opinion on this. My opinion is that the Fed should never have cut rates at all. Yeah. I don't think the economic data really supported it as much as everyone else seems to think. So I'm not panicking. If the market wants to panic because the Fed's not cutting rates, then great. I hope they. I want them to save as much ammo as they can for when things start to get bad. Yeah, I mean, things Uh, seem pretty good right now. I mean, if you look at the general data, I mean, unemployment's obviously in a very good place. Consumers are definitely spending. Um, Energy prices low. Inflation uh, virtually non-existent. I mean, it's actually a pretty great time to be a consumer. Yeah, the fact that inflation's non-existent is really the only significant argument, in my mind, to be made for cutting rates. Yeah. Um, Usually, you cut rates when inflation – or you raise rates when inflation starts getting out of control. Sure. Yeah. And that really hasn't happened. So inflation's really low. I'm, I and I I get that to some extent, but there's no. It, I would understand a rate cut based on inflation if other economic signs were pointing toward, you know, a slowdown, a recession. You know, unemployment was ticking up, anything like that. But we're just not seeing it. So I personally am not a fan of the starting to cut rates because, as you said, it kind of reduces the ammo the Fed has. In the case that you know they really need to use it, and that's where you get into quantitative easing and things like that. Yeah. So no, I don't think quantitative easing should be a part of the conversation right now, despite what the president seems to think. Um, I think shortly before we recorded this, he just said the Fed should cut by a full percentage point and implement some sort of quantitative easing. <laughs> I saw that. I feel like that's just a bit, that's just a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh the, I mean, the stock market would love it. Sure. So, I mean, I, I would expect the market to like you know soar by a thousand points if that actually happened. Well, I think I maybe just, that's his negotiating bent, right? He's thinking like, hey, cut by a full point, you know, introduce quantitative easing, and then he's thinking like, so man, if I say cut by a point, maybe I get a half point, and maybe we get a little quantitative easing as opposed to like a lot. <laughs> maybe that's just the negotiator in him. I don't know. Yeah, it just it seems like a, a lofty starting point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, hey, we will uh, be watching Thursday for any comments that come out of Jackson Hole, and uh, 
If it's anything material, we will certainly revisit next week. Uh, let's pivot over to one of our favorite companies out there, Matt, MasterCard. Um, MasterCard, obviously, the, the big payments provider, one of the owners of the uh, the rails, so to speak, that really uh, help all of these payments get from point A to point B. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin and stuff like that over the past couple of years. And digital currency, cryptocurrency, I think, is gaining a little momentum, a little bit more credibility. And so, we're seeing a lot of companies out there with with big and respectable positions in the space start experimenting with the the you know cryptocurrency bitcoin things like that um, a little bit more sounds like mastercard is starting to place some more bets in this space actually looking to establish its own digital currency team not necessarily to establish its own digital currency but it looks like more how they're going to be a part of this digital currency world as uh, it it Gains a little bit more share in our lives, uh, you know. I tell you, Matt. The first thing I thought of when I read this was that it 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 adds to my skepticism that Facebook, whether directly or indirectly, is really equipped to deal with a market like this. And I think a lot of that goes back to two things. Um, for all of the strengths that Facebook has, I think number one, it has a brand problem. I don't know that I look at, at Facebook and think that I trust them. With my money, um, but then also, it really goes to show you that there are companies out there that have been building themselves on this payment space for a very long time. I mean, this is stuff that Mastercard and Visa and other companies like this are really equipped to deal with and, and build versus something like a Facebook. So, you know, when we see Mastercard partnering up with Libra and being a part of that network, that's that's a very small bet on Mastercard's part. I mean, that could just evaporate tomorrow, and it's nothing. To see MasterCard wanting to get in there and take their ownership and build this space out a little bit, though, I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, um, MasterCard has said in the past that uh, so-called stable coins, which means cryptocurrencies that are pegged to the U.S. dollar or some other currency, yeah, definitely will play a role in its future. And it's not hard to see why. Um, I mean, MoneyGram and Ripple is a big example. They just partnered, and the idea is that if you know, how much does it cost you to wire money overseas right now? Thirty, forty dollars. Sometimes that more, sounds yeah. standard. Um, so the idea is that if you have these so-called stable coins, you can use them to transfer money internationally with you know for a few pennies instead of you know thirty or forty dollars. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely and and the same technology could theoretically be applied to you know domestic money transfers as well, which is where a Mastercard would come in. So if they could cut down fees, it can make them more competitive with say Visa and American Express when. Shopping around where when getting merchants to accept their card, it's I mean there's a big war on fees going on as we know. Oh yeah. So the the payments company that can offer the cheapest services is going to win long term. And Mastercard, this is kind of a, the first step in them doing that. Um, and this kind of ties in with the discussion we had last time I was on about the question of whether payments companies had something to worry about from cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And we mentioned that it's kind of an error in thinking to consider them as two separate types of companies. Um, you know, the, the cryptocurrencies and blockchain are technologies that will eventually be incorporated into these companies, especially as they gain traction. I sure. Mean, I mean, it's, it's a new facet to this overall market as it evolves. Right. And you could bet if 
you know, companies, if cryptocurrencies really start picking up traction, that MasterCard is not going to be the last one to do this. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be sure if, I wouldn't be surprised if Visa and American Express have already had similar discussion. American Express partnered with with Ripple that I already mentioned a few years ago already um, in order to kind of investigate the the applications of that that technology. That was that was Ripple's biggest name partnership, I think, until this point. So it's definitely an interesting development. I don't think it'll be the last. They're definitely the first of the big payments companies to really start hiring for their own cryptocurrency division. But I would be really surprised if we didn't see this coming from the other ones pretty soon. Okay, well, this kind of segues nicely then into a uh, an email we got from a, a listener. And uh, Ronald, uh, thanks for the email, Ronald. Ronald writes, hey, fools, on the financials podcast the other day, Jason and Matt answered a question about cryptocurrency disrupting the payment sector. While I doubt this would ever happen, I am curious about blockchain or similar type of technology disrupting the payments industry. Retailers are paying billions of dollars every year to all the companies involved in a card, mobile, or online transaction. Retailers literally have billions of reasons to find a way to make this a cheaper process. I'm a happy... Uh, cashless society shareholder, but have to assume that somebody is trying to find a way to disrupt that business. Thanks, fools. You are all awesome. P.S. Man, I got to throw this P.S. in here. Loving, loving my AI and AR services. And Matt, as the AR service lead, you know, and I'm certain, you know, I'll make sure Seth hears this too. Uh, it's nice to know that, that uh, Ronald is enjoying his AI and AR services. Thank you, Ronald. We'll keep working hard to make those services enjoyable and lucrative. But back to your question, um, Matt. We're not talking about crypto per se, but blockchain technology, perhaps. Are these retailers, how do you feel about that? Are these retailers looking at some way to disrupt the current payments environment to, to, to save a few pennies on I'd every transaction? That, yeah, I mean, I don't. Sure. Well, I'd, I'd say that companies like MasterCard are certainly trying to find a way to disrupt it. Yeah. As I, um, generally, retailers pay you know 1% to 3%, depending on the situation in credit card processing fees. So if MasterCard can get their fees down to say, you know, 25 basis points, 50 basis points, then that disrupts the payments industry pretty good. That saves retailers billions of dollars a year. Absolutely. So I think to kind of answer that question, I think the big payments companies are going to end up incorporating this technology into their current systems in order to bring their fees down. As I mentioned, there's a big war on fees. Um, American Express, I interviewed American Express's uh, team a few few months ago, yeah. and um, they were talking about how they've recently taken steps to lower their fees to become more competitive. And I don't see you know, Visa and MasterCard just accepting the fact that American Express is now competitive with them. <laughs> um, there's going to be a constant war on fees between those big, the big ones. Um, so I see blockchain and cryptocurrency technology having a big role in that. I don't think credit or merchant processing fees are going to be in the you know, two to three percent range forever. No. I can see that coming down, and I see blockchain having a lot to do with it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we're seeing those fees just continue to come down, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And 
Um, I mean, if you're a merchant, then it's you know, I mean, you can ask any merchant. I mean, do you want to accept cash? Some would love to. Some really don't want to manage it. Um, and so there's that trade-off there. Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you. I think that you're going to find these companies figuring out ways to incorporate any kind of technology that's going to make the transaction uh, go more quickly, uh, be less prone to fraud, um, and and create va- create value on both sides of the equation. There, I look at companies like Square, for example. Um, and I think that beyond fees, you see companies like Square trying to say, okay, well, we want to make sure that we're offering a lot of value in the way of services. And so, whether that's software for restaurants or software for retailers, uh, payroll management, whatever that may be, it's it's figuring out ways to be less dependent on the fees and, and more dependent on that long-term relationship. But yeah, I think that's a good question, Ronald, and appreciate you asking that. Appreciate the kind words, too. Uh, okay, Matt, let's wrap it up this week. Uh, as always, with one to watch, what stock have you got your eye on this week? I am kind of turning my turning the tide on this one, and I'm putting Wells Fargo <laughs> back on my list. No uh, Bank of America? Well, they're they're still my favorite. They're still the biggest bank stock I actually own. Yeah. But uh, Wells Fargo is just getting too cheap to ignore it. The current price of around forty five dollars a share. Um, that means their buyback program alone is going to amount to about almost twelve percent of the outstanding shares this year alone. They're just buying wow. back stock hand over fist. Uh, the, the dividend yields up to four and a half percent, which is very high for a bank stock. Um, and what's really interesting, if you look at them on a price to book valuation, which is how I generally value bank stocks, um, you have to look all the way back to 2011 to find a price to book that is where it is now for for Wells Fargo. If you look at say Bank of America, Bank of America, they've you know you only have to go back to 2017 to look to find the same valuation. In J.P. Morgan's case, they hit their current price to book back in 2018. So Wells Fargo is trading at its lowest valuation in you know eight years, and sure there's some reason for it with the scandals and everything but does that mean it needs to be trading at the same valuation right as we were coming out of the crisis probably not so it's i think it's there's a point where most stocks become attractive and wells fargo is reaching it in my mind yeah i like that i mean hey, it's always always uh, always tomorrow and maybe they're getting their act together and what's the ticker there uh, sorry, the ticker is WFC. Okay, good. Uh, this is, for me, I'm just a little bit of a shout to one of our listeners, Joseph Crivelli, who sent an email recently asking about this company, uh, BGC Partners. Ticker is BGCP. And uh, BGC Partners, is it's a financial services business. It primarily focuses on uh, trade execution and broker dealer services, and so uh, the markets they serve primarily are wholesale financial, energy insurance um, clients, include many of the world's largest banks, and so essentially they're helping uh, you know through this through this brokerage, um, moving a lot of money <laughs> around, and, and most of their revenue is generated by commissions, and I think that that could be one of the challenges in these type of brokerage businesses that commissions tend to to come down unless you can offer some type of a Specialized service there, a competitive advantage, so to speak. Um, it is. It is worth noting. I mean, their commissions essentially doubled from 2014 to 2018. Total revenue was close to that as well. Now that adjusts for a few transactions along the way, spinoffs and whatnot. Um, 
But they believe that their technology, they have a hybrid brokerage platform uh, that can accommodate for some more complex and less liquid markets. And that's what they consider to be really one of their advantages. Now, there's some costs that come with that. Uh, but, you know, it's a, still a small cap company. So there could be the potential there for uh, some interesting growth. I think one of the things that maybe holds potential investors back it does have a bit of a convoluted ownership structure and you know there is an for an example i mean cantor fitzgerald owns a bit more than 13% of the shares outstanding and essentially owns the majority voting power of the company via class b shares so that's that's something at least to keep in mind there but an interesting business and certainly a market that is not going to be going away and we've seen with with some other businesses like this it can it can be a very big market opportunity as well so one I'll, I'll learn a little bit more about in the coming weeks thanks for the push there joseph uh that's going to wrap it up for us this week matt you guys back in school yet there uh, yeah, I think everyone went back to school today, actually. Today? Wow, okay. Well, we got like one week in counting, so it's coming soon, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll figure out how to make it work. You know, it's, it's, it's time for these kids <laughs> to go back to school, man. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, appreciate you joining this week, and it was always, uh, it's always nice to talk with you. Glad you guys had a nice, nice vacation, uh, and look forward to, uh, to getting back in here next week and talk about what's going on. All right. I will talk to you then. Okay. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, or The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.